0: Everyone, welcome to Backstory Sessions. I'm your host Matt. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hey everybody, it's Pat and I want to welcome you to this episode of Backstory Sessions i'm joined today by my co-host matt hey matt
0: hey Kat. hey everyone how are you
1: well it's uh, independence day weekend for us
0: that's right it is yeah
1: and um you know this story the episode that we have tonight is uh it really fits in well i think to independence day even though um the guests are from canada
0: yeah I'd say so um should be interesting for sure
1: um it's so you know the premise is this person that Felipe that we're going to interview he um he goes on this really long ride, so you know if that's the name of the the long rider um so like eight years you know long that's
0: That is a long ride.
1: (laughs) Yeah, have you ever like ridden a horse?
0: I mean, my mother had horses when I was a kid, and like we, I lived on a farm for a little while, and we had horses there, but nobody ever rode them because they're a little bit wild. So.
1: Yeah, wild horses, and I mean, so if have they been calm uh, or tame? I guess would be the word. Uh, did you ever think about, like, you know, I like to ride this horse to uh, Mexico, for instance?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not.
1: So, I mean, there'd be so much involved. And, I mean, just think about planning a trip. Like, what's the longest trip you've ever planned for? Um, let's see. I would
0: think I was in Vegas for eight days. That was, felt like. I don't know, a month, (laughs) and, uh, uh, when I went to Ukraine, that was, I was there eight days, I believe, or nine days, um, did a trip to the Caribbean, that was probably 11 or 12, so.
1: So, how much planning time do you think you put into those?
0: Um, the Ukraine one, really not a lot, I mean, that's when I threw the dart and ended up going to Odessa, um, probably three weeks after that, so there really wasn't a whole lot of planning there, um, Vegas was probably a month, I guess, but that was mainly just getting a flight and, you know, a place to stay, and Caribbean, yeah, probably, again, probably a month.
1: Yeah, so you can imagine if you were going to be gone eight years, um, you know, how much planning time that might take. So I mean, we are going to find out. That's definitely a question I've got to ask. But uh, I guess it just like blows my mind in a way that, um, you know, that it's even possible to go on such a long trip.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you would do it without... Especially, like, you know, it has got horses and, you know, all that. And uh, I don't know how you would... Like, the logistics of planning something like that would be really, really difficult, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is just really an amazing story. Because I think, like, in general, there are people that are meant for trips and people that are not meant for them, like... You know, in the car, there's always, like, and and so we're talking about, you know, cars um, versus you can imagine a horse, like, how that might be different. But, you know, in the car, like, just riding, some people are like, oh, my God, you know, how much longer till we get there?
0: I have Um, been on a few trips like that, yes.
1: Yes, me too. I'm usually the one saying it, in fact, but... (laughs) Um, so I can't imagine, like, I mean, I just can't imagine it. So, eight years on a horse from Canada to Brazil, then to Alaska, and then back to Canada. Uh, this is gonna be just, I don't know, uh, a mind-blowing, amazing episode, I think.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he managed all that, and, uh, you know. What, what what was it all involved in doing it? I mean, eight years, it kind of sounds like you broke it up a little bit, I would guess.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think it would. Well, I mean, I guess we'll find out. But uh, I, I just really, I don't even know. Like, I can't even guess because I can't imagine it. Um, but people can watch. That's a great thing is that um, it, there is a documentary So people are able to watch this journey um, that was put together uh, by the director, Sean, that we're going to actually be speaking to on this episode as well. So we get to hear, like, how how much footage you can imagine that he probably had over eight years to go through and put this together.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just wading through it all because, like, you know... Uh, I don't know what kind of stuff he videotaped on his ride, but, uh, you know, I can imagine there were a lot of things that were a little bit repetitive, but, I mean, maybe not.
1: Well, and I mean, like, what if you lose your, um, you know, whatever, you're storing all of this on, or you, like, fall into, I don't know, a swamp or (laughs) something, or... You know, there's just so many things that could happen, it seems like to me, uh, that just getting all this footage is amazing, and, like, how do you, like, how do you, do you just, like, keep all that for eight years, and then, because technology changes so fast, like, would it even work anymore? I mean, right, you know? yeah, Like, yeah. Do you get one iPhone, and the next, you know, uh, you're <laughs> trading it in, because, like there's a better one or something yeah um,
0: did he have like a cd burner or something when he started out and then switched to flash <laughs> drives or something I know.
1: yeah so I mean, there's just so many questions and, and we're gonna just get into this episode and find out the answers but i do want to because it's been so popular uh, my saying hello you know to different countries and all right and who, is you're listening.
0: who is it this week
1: um, I, I thought this week was going to be Brazil because, you know, it ties into this story.
0: All right. Well, we do have some listeners down there.
1: Yeah, we do. And uh, we're probably going to have a lot more after this episode airs. But uh, at any rate, I want to go ahead and say oi to all of those that will be listening. Oi? Oi. Okay. <laughs> oi, <Oy>, Matt.
0: <laughs> oi, Kat.
1: Yeah, see how that works. I didn't realize that um, that's
0: uh, how you say hello in Brazil.
1: Yeah, Portuguese, I believe it is. So uh, ah,
0: that's right. Yes, I was thinking for some reason I was thinking it was Spanish, but
1: yeah. Well, I I mean, I'm hoping that I'm correct. (laughs) (laughs) If not, oi, you know,
0: it'll be Olá
1: speakers, and um, we'll go from there. But. Yeah, it's uh, let's get into this episode and get some of our questions answered for sure. All
0: right, that sounds good.
1: Sean and Felipe, hey, I, I want to welcome both of you to Backstory Sessions today. We're really excited to hear the story of the long rider and to have you both as our guests. It's
2: awesome to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you
3: so much for having us.
1: Um, it's, it's a fascinating story. I can't wait to hear all about it as we, um, as we discuss this documentary. Um, Sean, I guess the first question I have, since you were the director is, um, how did you hear about this story? And, um, what did, what was it about it that made you want to be involved?
2: Um, I originally heard of this story through, um, well, I, I've known Felipe for many years. We went to the same high school together, but, uh, I kind of pieced the puzzle together. As I saw like images on social media, um, Felipe was in Mexico one day, then he was in Guatemala, then Honduras, and just kind of <laughs> following these photos and trying to put together the story in, in my head. Um, and it wasn't until he kind of um, completed his first journey and I read an article about it and just became so fascinated that I uh, I had to, to reach out and, and, and kind of get more information. And he had just finished his first book called Long Ride Home. I devoured it and then, you know, basically said I, I need to be a part of this somehow. This story is so... Um, Odyssey in nature, it's almost like a Greek myth, like this massive, uh, epic modern day story that I just kind of wanted to be a part of. And, and thankfully, he uh, he agreed.
1: Um, so did you was directing the role that you always saw yourself playing in this, or was there writing, or what interests?
2: Yeah, um, so originally, uh, you know, this was, uh, I'm going to be talking in 2019 terms, kind of pre-pandemic. I wanted to, you know, option the book and then turn it into a screenplay. And so we did that and wrote a draft of the script and um, got some funding to kind of uh, do do, uh, the the screenplay. Uh, And then, you know. Covid hit and borders shut down, so we could no longer make plans to to shoot this film in, in Canada and Mexico and, and Brazil where we wanted to film. And, and because borders were shut down and and production started shutting down, we had nothing to do. So uh, that's when Felipe said, "You know, I shot all this footage on on my journey. Maybe we can do a um, put together a documentary first. And that this became kind of our Covid project. So we just kind of pivoted from the more narrative, uh, creative version, and, and focused on the um, a documentary instead.
1: So, are you're both in Canada currently, or you were during the pandemic?
2: That's where, yeah, the, I, we were both in Canada at the time, and um, it took some coordination. I mean, a lot of the footage uh, had to be shipped from from the U.S. That's where it was being held, and. Um, and Felipe was in Brazil uh, during the pandemic. So it became a bit of a cross you know, continental sort of project that we had to uh, kind of um, do a little choreography to make it all happen. Uh, but it, it uh, you know, that, that was the story of the pandemic anyway. We worked over Zoom and through email and by the, uh, by the time the pandemic sort of uh, ran its course, um, you were able to finish the project and, and bring it out to festivals at the start of this year.
1: And it's kind of fitting too, I think, um, that it worked out that way because of, you know, the journey or the story itself is across so many uh, different places. So for you to have to work under those, uh, that construct is kind of um, ironic, I think, too. <laughs>
2: Um, I do think it was uh, very uh, healing for me because at a time where the world was shut down and we couldn't travel at all, this working on this project for the last two years was kind of my version of seeing the world. I got to experience things through Felipe's eyes that I wouldn't otherwise normally have seen, and um, you know, this, this kind of became my outlet for breaking out of the confines of my uh, you know, home office.
1: Wow, which of course, you know, everyone needed. I think something during that long period, as it turned out to be. Um, yeah. Felipe, so this is a fascinating story. It's it's your story. Um, you were in Canada um, when this story begins, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. It uh, it began at the Calgary Stampede, the largest rodeo in Canada in uh, 2012 when i set off on my first journey
1: um and so what were you doing in canada is that your were you living there at the time or
3: yeah so my parents uh, moved to canada when i was nine years old so i was brought up here and uh, i was studying journalism at ryerson university graduated uh, spent two years planning this project obviously uh you know, it was very arduous uh, in order to even take that first step because, you know, I had to get the horses, I had to get the funding, the equipment, the know-how. And once I acquired everything, I, I set off to ride back home uh, to Brazil.
1: So, I, I the first thing, I guess, that comes to my mind is, like, you're just like going about a normal day and i mean how does this idea ever even like i'm trying to imagine myself thinking okay i think i'm gonna you know ride a horse to say if it was canada from where i am right now I, i mean how did how did that idea even come into your mind
3: yeah, so it was very gradual. You know, I, I truly believe we all have a purpose in life and everyone's going through their paths. And, and this was mine. Like, when I was a little kid, uh, before I was even born, my dad gave me the name Felipe because it means a friend of horses. And before I could walk, I was atop a quarter horse of my old man. So the horse has been a constant in my life since I was a little kid. And uh, at the same time, not only did I, you know, get this love for animals from my old man, but I also inherited this dream from him. Uh, he used to read a book to me when I was a little kid about a Swiss schoolteacher who rode horseback from Argentina to New York in 1925. And uh, I'm not sure why, but that story just captivated my imagination so much. I remember being a little kid and at the at the family farm, imagining how I was chifley crossing all those countries, you know, swimming rivers full of crocodiles and climbing the Andes and arriving in Mexico and and I just fell in love with it. And as I got older, it just it got stronger and stronger and stronger until one day I was in my last year of journalism. Um, and I, you know, I started thinking, you know, this was in 1925. Could you do it today? And I Googled it and, and found the Long Riders Guild, which is an association of, of people who have jumped into the saddle and ridden off into the unknown, ridden more than a thousand miles consecutively. They're a part of this guild. And, uh, I saw on their website that there was people still doing this today in Russia and, and Argentina and, and Mongolia. And I was like, you know what? It's now or never. So like I said, I built that war room and spent two years planning until I required everything and, and took that first step.
1: And so how old were you at that time?
3: When I made the decision to go, I was 23. And when I actually set off, I was 25.
1: Wow. Matt, can you imagine um, doing something like that or planning something like that when you were 25?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> the logistics of something like that would just be mind boggling. I can imagine that, uh, you know, all the different things you had to think of, like what, you know, what if this happens? And what, if, <clears throat> excuse me, what if that happens? And how am I going to eat and feed the horse and all that?
1: did did you have reservations about those
3: things yeah for sure i mean there was a lot of fears and unknowns and reservations but uh, ultimately i i kind of realized that you know doing this kind of stuff is like jumping off a cliff into a a lake you know if you if you look at the edge and you peer off too much you're never going to jump you know what i mean the cliff's going to get higher and higher and higher so eventually you just got to take that leap of faith and and also, you know, I prepared myself for those two years. I, I spoke to long riders around the globe uh, who got me ready for, you know, a lot of the problems I was going to encounter. And I read everything that I could, every kind of literature that I could on long riding. I studied maps arduously, you know, Google Maps going in, um, you know, with the satellite, physical maps, speaking to local people. In these countries getting the permits i needed getting the horses ready so you know strategic planning is the difference between success and failure it's definitely the difference between life and death for me and and it's what allowed me to feel prepared as prepared as i could obviously uh, for that first day mind you when i you know went in and and climbed into that saddle on that day one I always say that it felt like I had a, a bowling ball lodged in my throat because I was swallowing the fear back. You know, I didn't know where I was going to sleep that night. That's just the way this journey works. You ride 20 to 30 kilometers, knock on someone's door, and, and ask for help. Uh, but ultimately, I, I knew I needed to do this. It felt like nothing less than my fate, like I said uh, before. You know, I just this is what I was born to do. And uh, I'm a very positive person, so I always believed that at the end of the day, everything would work out, and, and it did.
1: So, your friends and family, um, what did they think about this journey you were about to take?
3: Oh, my dad loved it, right? He's a cowboy, so cowboys want their kids to suffer, so they become bad And this (laughs) was his dream, so it was mine, right? So, he was like, yeah, hell yeah, you're doing this. I'm coming to ride with you. And he came to ride with me in Mexico for three months. He became a long rider as well more than a thousand miles my mom was freaking out you know she's like a, a chicken she wants all her 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 chicks around her right so she she took a lot of uh, uh drugs to sleep a night while uh, a lot of said it is while i was on this journey Cause, <laughs> you know i'd be in mexico and say hey i think i'm gonna arrive in the next town in five days but so then i have no signal and then it takes take six seven days and and she's reading news about people's heads being chopped off and arms and you know, hung upside down in the town square and, huh. and obviously she was very worried But, you know, the cool thing about my parents always say that, you know, they play a huge role in this journey and, and who I am today because they never cut my wings Although my mom was obviously worried, although my dad was obviously worried as well They never told me not to do this, you know, they always supported me 100% um, They were so positive throughout the entire planning stage when, when everyone called me crazy When everyone said I wasn't going to be able to do this And I just got no after no after no after no. And I continued to fight for it, you know. Um, They always supported me and my friends as well, you know. They were kind of my first teammates in this, you know. I had a friend that was a photographer and he took the first photos. Another friend helped me edit the pilot. Another friend helped me prepare the sponsorship uh, magazine that I put together. So um, I had an amazing, uh, overwhelming
2: amount of support around me.
1: So this took place over an eight-year time span, um, the actual journey itself?
3: Yeah, that's correct. So it was three different long rides. The first one was from Canada to Brazil. That took 803 days. Then I went from Brazil to the southern tip of Argentina, Ushuaia, the southernmost city on the planet, and that took a year and three months. And then two years ago, I did the final stretch from Alaska back to Calgary, where I started the whole thing and uh, became the youngest person in the world to cross the Americas on the back of a horse, one of only four. And uh, it took eight years for the entire three journeys to, to finalize more than 25,000 kilometers ridden across 12 countries.
1: Um, were you ever afraid?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I said, that first day I was afraid. I'm like, how the hell am I going to do <laughs> Like And then, you know, we're talking about being followed by grizzly bears. Uh, having to befriend drug lords. I saw two people shot in, in, dead in Central America. I witnessed a man trying to kill his wife in Honduras. Um, you know, we, we thought I was going to die several times over. And, uh, and yeah, there was a lot of fear, for sure. There was a lot of fear in, in,
2: involved in the entire uh, process.
1: So did you ever think of stopping? Um, I know, like, the you know, you're afraid when you first leave. Um, and that probably gets a little better as you get into it. But when you are encountering these real things that could take your life, um, do you ever think like, wow, I was lucky to escape that one. I'm, you know, going to stop. You
3: no, know, you know, it's like, it's just when you're, when you're born into a, a cowboy you know family, when your dad wears cowboy hat and spurs, Uh, one of the first lessons you learn is that quitting is not an option, right? Like we work with animals and the land and uh, you can't quit. You got to finish harvesting that field or, you know, you got to finish feeding the horses or the cows They're live animals, right? So, you know, that's ultimately, I think, what what allowed me to undertake this. I feel like a lot of people – Uh, would have quit (laughs) uh, several times over when when the tough got going and it it, it did every day Um, the other part of it was that the horses they were the glue to it all like I needed to get them home to Brazil safely on that first journey so that I could uh, retire them you know Um, I knew they were they were only going to do that stretch of it and uh, and the the third part of it is having purpose you know my purpose was to to go on this journey and it, it, it felt like I had to finish it like I couldn't just Halfway through, you know what I mean. I needed to actually uh, get to the bottom of it, so that always kept me going.
1: Um, Sean, I so I guess I have this question for you. Um, had you realized, you know, what was going on at first, um, what would your thoughts or advice have been to him?
2: Oh, had I been there, um, I would have definitely encouraged him to. Uh, to uh, certainly bring a camera along and film as much uh, as uh, <laughs> as he possibly could. And thank God he did that because the footage is so incredibly compelling. But, you um, know, as, as, uh, as a lover of um, epic adventures, I would have just, yeah, told him to, to capture everything in the most cinematic way possible and allow us as an audience member to to feel what you're feeling. And um, I think it just intuitively, Felipe is trained as a journalist, so he, he does have that um, ability to, to tell a story visually and, and with uh, with his words. And um, our, ourselves as audiences um, are lucky that um, he had those skills because it really comes through in the film. I couldn't speak more highly of his, the way he captured everything along the, uh, the route. And it was just my job to kind of sift through all that footage and kind of tell a story in the most economical way possible, like going through 500 hours of footage and, and whittling it down to a 90 minute uh, experience for, for audiences was um, just a, a far, far less grueling task than what Felipe had to undergo. Um, so I was, I got to do it from the comfort of uh, an editing room, but Felipe had the battle scars to to prove that he actually went on this journey.
1: So, Felipe, what things would you film as you were going along? Like, did you know uh, I need this footage? Or, you know, was it just more or less like, oh, I want to remember this, so I'm going to film this? Guide us through, like, what, what made you decide what to film? Because I'm imagining you're, you've collected a whole lot of film over, you know, the whole journey.
3: Yeah, it was uh, it, it was a lot of footage, but ultimately, you know, because I was out there by myself, just myself and the horses. The horses carried everything in the back saddle. Um, I couldn't just shoot whatever I wanted because I had a limited amount of cards. You know, I would film everything. I camera shot with uh, two cards, so it would be A and B. And then once the cards got full, I would send card cards A back to, to the United States to the production company that was uh, holding it all. And then once they had it in the hard drive they would tell me, okay, you can now shoot with card B and then I'd be able to shoot those and they'd ship it back to me. This was all done through FedEx, uh, shipping to them and then getting the cards back. So it was about, you know, obviously trying to shoot what I felt would be the most compelling moments of the journey. Like when one of my horses fell in a hole in the United States, for instance, I knew I needed to capture that, you know, the process of getting him out of there because that was going to be one of the most um, scary moments of the trip, and, and people were going to be, you know, that's what you want in films, or moments like that, and, and you know, a lot of it was just uh, meeting interesting characters. I love telling people stories, and, and that was one of the big desires of this project, because you travel three kilometers an hour, 30 kilometers a day, you rely on people to kind of help you along the way, to find a place for the horses to sleep, uh, to find, you know, feed for them, and, and so every day I had to knock on a stranger's door, and and that took me into another realm. You know, I got to stay in a drug lord's house for for three days in Honduras. Who gets that experience, right? And, and that was worried <laughs> to me by the horse. So that was something I wanted to film. How heavily armed they were. Um, you know, when I when I met these characters that were larger than life, that's when I kind of focused on them and and took out the camera. When I saw the most beautiful vistas, um, you know, you had to really. Think like an editor. That's something that I, you know, I went to journalism uh, and and, uh, and focused on, on um, documentary making. And uh, I shot two international documentaries before I, I graduated and I ended up shooting and editing them. And it kind of showed me that you got to think like an editor. There's no point to shoot, you know, a thousand hours when you can only use, you know, maybe 30 of that because the rest is shaky or it's just, it's not interesting or it doesn't relate to the story you're trying to tell. So I always try to shoot, thinking in the editing bay of what we could actually use uh, when it came time to put this together
1: so what did happen with the horse like what caused that and was the horse okay and what did you do in that situation
3: so we were following a a trail and i ended up coming up to a locked gate and uh i would have to go back like for hours to get out of this trail and, and try to figure out another way around and When I was looking, there was a field that connected to the trail again, Uh, but it had very high weeds. And what I didn't know is that there was a ditch uh, running um, right in the middle of that field, a very deep ditch. And uh, we started crossing it, and when my horse kind of started falling in with his front end, he he tried to desperately not fall in, but when he he did that, he kind of fell into the hole like a little dog, like his back end went in first, and his front legs were kind of caught. And uh, luckily, I was able to get him out, you know, I uh, wiggled him out of, the, out of the hole, so he was standing in the ditch, and then I pulled his saddle off, dug the side of the ditch a bunch, and then counted to three, stepped out, and, and he jumped out of the hole, and he was fine, and we were able to continue on. But a very tense moment in real life and also uh,
1: in the documentary. So I imagine that you were very attached to the horse, um... I mean, do you develop, like, a, I don't know, a bond? as, Or did you have that bond already before you left?
3: No. No, no one will ever have the bond that I developed with these horses because we don't spend as much time like that with these animals. Like, I used to rope, but, you know, you sleep in your room, your horse is in the barn, you know, you go to feed it, you go to practice a couple times a week. But when you go on a long ride like I did, like that first long ride with my three horses, Frenchie, Bruiser, and Dude, I was out on the on the road for 803 days with these animals. That's 803 days that I did not leave their side. Like I slept next to them, I woke up next to them, I ate breakfast with them, I ate dinner with them, I rode them 30 kilometers. I, if we were resting, I was resting with them and and taking care of them. And um, the only way to describe it is that they're my kids. You know, they're my children. They're the most important thing in the world to me. Um, those horses have such a deep impact in my my being and my soul and my heart. Um, you know, I'll never be the same. I, I always say that they made me a better person and uh, they're an extension of my body. They're they're everything to me.
1: Yeah. Um it's so did they have different personalities?
3: Oh hundred percent. Horses are like people, right? So Franchi is like just, you know, like a kid that only does bad things. He kind of looks like a mixture of like Brad Pitt and The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, he's blonde, he's bleached blonde hair, super strong, beautiful. But at the same time, he's like the comic relief of the group. He would snore so loud at night. and he slaps. he would fart all the time. And uh, when he ate, he was just a mess. And just he would just get into trouble all the time. Uh, Bruiser is this beautiful chestnut horse, super slick, super tall. I would say he was like the 007 of the group. Like, if he was a, a human, he'd be a secret agent that spoke, like, seven languages and was just so you know so um well put together and uh he was like a horse fit for a king like he would know what i wanted him to do before i even wanted what i, if I even knew what i wanted him to do uh, one of the best horses i ever got to ride and uh dude who was the mustang that was uh, given to me later on in the journey in the southern part of the united states uh he was like a surfer he had also bleach blonde hair like uh, Frenchy, and he was kind of like the policeman of the group. He would always, if I turned him out in the field, he would always stay a little bit apart from Frenchy and, and Bruiser and never let anyone get near them, but also very hardy. You know, as a Mustang, it's like he had a thick sense to him. He so could smell bears. and He was just, he dealt better with like the heat, the cold, very rustic, um, and just a very loving horse. He was the lovey-dovey of the three. I could just, If I wanted to, I could pet him for like three days and he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't move. He would just stand there and just take him the love. He loved it.
1: Aw. So how did the day-to-day work? Like, so you, like when you went to the post office or whatever to send the, you know, the, the cards that you were filming. um, So how do you do that with horses and, you know, how did, how did all of that work?
3: So in the United States and Canada and and developed countries, it was a little easier. You know, you find FedEx anywhere. You just wait till you get to a town where you can get to a FedEx. Someone can drive you or you can, you know, get a taxi or walk to the FedEx store. But then in Central America, it started getting harder and harder because I would actually have to take a bus to the capital to ship these cards and, you know, have to go in the morning, come back at night or just sleep at that town, at that city and then come back the next morning uh logistically that was that was very hard getting these cards shipped uh, back and forth aside from everything else i was doing like you know riding the horses taking care of them and and surviving out there
1: so who watched the horses while you were you know taking the bus or whatever you had to do
3: so you'd find a ranch you know there's always uh, cattle
1: ranches and horse people in all these countries the
3: the coolest part about this journey is that you find out the horse is a common language and uh, it was the horse that opened all those doors for me you know and these 12 nations that I crossed they weren't hosting me because they wanted to help me they wanted to help the horses first and then they kind of met me found out about me and then we became family but ultimately what opened that door was was the horse and so you know you when you felt comfortable you found you got to a, a family's ranch and you see that they have horses they have cattle and everyone's you know, well taken care of. You say, hey, do you mind if I leave the horses here for the day? I got to go to the capital. Oftentimes, they would drive you. They'd want to come with you and help you. And and then you go in the morning and come back at night or come back the following the morning and continue on.
1: So what was the most surprising thing that you learned on this journey? Like maybe something you didn't expect?
3: Um, I think the most surprising thing is just how strong we are, um, you know, mentally, people talk about all the time, about my body, you know, like, oh my God, you're on a horse rate 10 hours a day. Like, what was that like physically? And it was tough, but you can uh, silence physical pain, uh, but mental pain, you can't. And uh, that was the hardest part of this whole thing. And at the same time, the learning experience for me was how, how far I can go. Like my limit is much further than I ever imagined. Like I can't, Begin to tell you how many times I thought, like, man, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, I'm not going to be able to get to the other side of this mountain or I'm not going to be able to cross this desert. I'm not going to be able to stay sane to this wind of 120 kilometers an hour. Like, and you just keep pushing and you just keep pushing and you just keep pushing and and somehow some way you come out the other side and, and, and you really start to understand our strength and that if you're willing to put in the work and if you're willing to focus, you can do whatever you want. Like we're the architects to our lives. Everyone has excuses, but when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, how tall you are, how smart you are. It's all about work. It's about you know honing in on that skill and focusing and putting in the time and and being positive and and you know persevering. And when you're able to do that, you, you can literally move mountains and and get to wherever you want. So that's probably the biggest lesson today. I. I kind of, whatever it is, in my next project, whatever it is I want to do, I know I can do it, no matter how hard it is.
1: Sean, as you watched the documentary or as you were working on directing it, um, what was the lesson you took away from it?
2: Um, I believe that I do not have the same <laughs> ethic as uh, Felipe does. I I don't think i could um undergo what uh, what he went through um uh, but i i think what felipe has taught me is to um to take that first step i think that was the uh the whole summation of the of the, the film um the, the message of the film is you know i think if you have a dream and you want to kind of Uh, undertake it uh, just you need to take that first step in order to deal it I just don't think my dreams are as uh, monumental physically and and mentally I I set myself up for smaller dreams and I I do take that first step in in trying to achieve those now but let
3: let me let me just chime in here for a second and Sean is an epic filmmaker like are you kidding me like we're all in our own you know course and we all have different dreams and uh, Minos throughout a horse across continents. His was to become a director, and he's done that. You know, it's so hard to become a filmmaker anywhere in the world, but especially in Canada, you know, this isn't Hollywood, and, and he has done that so well, and, and uh, he's a multi-award-winning director. And to anyone listening to this, you know, your dream doesn't have to be crossing continents on the back of a horse. You know, it could be going to university or becoming a doctor or, or a lawyer or whatever it is. We all have our own journeys. And that's uh, exactly what Sean just said, that and that was the hopes of our of our, of our our documentary is to show people that you can't just sit there and think about what if this happened, what if that happened, but this, you just got to take the first step. And when you're able to put that fear aside and take that first step, I feel like the universe conspires in our favor and, and in the end everything works out.
1: Yeah, because I, as I was listening to you, Sean, I was thinking like, you know, with COVID, like, I don't think... Anyone expected a pandemic was going to hit. And um, you were still able to take that time and overcome the obstacles that that presented to continue um, putting together, directing the documentary. Um, so, you know, it was more challenging, I'm sure, because of COVID, but you didn't let that stop you. So, you know, no, in that
2: as you play, as you put it like that, yeah. This I mean, the film would not have been born otherwise. So if, if there is a silver lining for us and, and the the pandemic, it's the fact that this uh, the long rider was born and, and um, audiences get to see it now. And you know, based on our past experiences, we recently screened in Mumbai, we screened in uh, Edmonton at different festivals, and uh, in South Carolina and Florida, we've all won awards everywhere we've screened and. It's, it's clear that audiences are, are loving the fact that they can watch a film and, you know, feel hopeful and, and um, energetic and um, inspired after, after they see it. It's been a long two years of, of going through this, this pandemic and um, to, to finally see some hope and inspiration on screen is, uh, is something that audiences are, are really responding
1: to and so you have a screening uh june 16th could you tell us about that
2: yeah we are so excited to be screening at um dances with films it's uh, one of the biggest festivals in the u.s and it takes place at the um the iconic chinese theaters in in hollywood and so we'll be screening there on thursday june 16th at 7 p.m so we have a great uh evening slot at the festival and we just can't wait that'll be our west coast premiere so um all the uh hopefully some industry buyers come out with uh powerful gatekeepers who can kind of control the fate of our film and get it into uh into screens across the uh across the globe
1: so you must feel pretty proud of this um finished product
2: when we were making the film yeah we were sitting in my little home editing studio and um yeah, it, it's amazing how far a film can take you. You know, you, when you're making it, you know, with a small team at a little home uh, studio, it's it's mind-blowing to think of how far a film can kind of travel. Um, and so it's been nothing but a, a pleasure to see how, how audiences and festival programmers are, are responding to the film. It's been great. Um,
1: so, Felipe, do you have... um? A favorite location uh, along this journey was there some place that is special to you for some reason?
3: Yeah, like there was. Oh, there's so many special places for me. You know, I loved crossing Mexico. No one celebrated uh, my journey like the Mexicans. I loved Northern uh, Alaska and Canada. Just the beauty I, I saw there was so intense and dramatic and and um singular but you know the place that has really captured my heart is patagonia um argentina not only for its beauty but uh, that's where i met my wife um clara and uh, on the journey and you know it just uh, i feel like i have a, a piece of patagonia with me everywhere i go now through her and it's a place that i love going back to and, and uh, it's just one of the most gorgeous places as well that, I, that i've i've gone to to see from the back of a horse
1: and so if you could tell us just a little bit about how how you met her
3: yeah for sure so um i was crossing patagonia with a friend of mine an Argentinian. and uh first we met her stepdad he uh, is a park ranger we were crossing all these national parks and um her dad was like he hosted us so well and he was like hey when you guys get to my town in three days um, I'm going to invite you to my house. I've been here with my family. I have two stepdaughters. They love horses. They're around your age. It's going to be great. And something, and I are like, yeah, sure. You know, we leave that place and we forget about this guy. You know, we're suffering in the middle of nowhere. It's very desertous, very hard terrain, mountainous. And we finally get to the small town called Elbow Sun. But when we get there, there's a big outdoor, um, big poster on in the front of the town that says, welcome to Elbow Sun this weekend, the beer festival. And Tutsi and I are like, oh my God, this is amazing! We never get anywhere for anything, right? On, on horseback, guys, late. So we're like, oh, this is gonna be amazing! We're gonna to get to to meet girls. There's gonna be copious amounts of beers. We're gonna to get to go to a real festival. So we're planning of the amazing night we're gonna have. And when we get to the place where we're gonna rest the horses, we see the stepdad, and we're like, oh no, he's gonna invite us to his house tonight. We're gonna to be you know, having to share stories all night. We're not gonna be able to go to the festival, so. Very quickly, Toki and I devised this plan that we say we can't go. So we're like, okay, we're going to get there. When he asks us, we tell him we we have to shoe the horses tonight. We're going to get new shoes for them. The farrier is going to come, so we're going to be here. Unfortunately, we can't go to dinner tonight, but we'll go tomorrow. So we're like, okay, deal, deal, deal. So when we get there, we get off the horses. We're pulling saddles off. He starts talking to us. Oh, you boys dated. Welcome to my town. All of a sudden, I see Clara, his stepdaughter. And I'm like, oh, my God. Fall in love right away, and he goes, Hey, boy, I would like to invite you to eat pizzas on my house tonight. And I'm, I'm like, Pizzas? I love pizzas. I'm like, I'd love to go. And Tati's like, What the hell? I don't <laughs> know you so, yeah, to this day, Tati is very angry at me because I just not plan out the window in a second, but it was meant to be, you know, it was, it was love at first sight. And, and I looked at her and I was like, I just felt like I was supposed to be with this woman. And, um, yeah, it was hard. She, she was a tough gaucha, um, but, you know, I, I don't give up easily. So managed to talk, talk her into coming out and riding with me and traveling with me for a month. And then when I got to Ushuaia, she was there. And then we kind of did the long-distance thing for a while. And the last long ride I did from Alaska to Calgary, uh, an amazing family from Alberta lent us a motorhome, So we had a support vehicle, and Clara actually drove it. Uh, the entire time, so we were able to carry water, feed, hay uh, for the horses, and when I got to the Calgary Stampede in 2020, I uh, asked her to marry me, and now we're living together and hoping to build a family soon.
1: Aw, well, that's a really, like, very sweet thing to come from the journey as well, so... uh... (sighs) It, it does doesn't seem ever, like right? part like, of your destiny. Like, when you look at this, you know, you said you felt that way since you were little. But um, it does Does it seem like, now that you've completed all that part, does it does not seem like it was your destiny still?
3: Oh, 100%. Like like I said, you know, it, 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 just so many things happened in my life and on this journey. Like, getting me prepared to leave. And then my dream was to go from Canada to Brazil. Like, I never... In my wildest dreams, imagine I, I was going to cross the Americas in its entirety. You know what I mean? And, and then when I got to Brazil, I, I wasn't prepared for that moment and ended up going into a, a terrible depression, anxiety, reoccurring nightmares. My life kind of fell apart and, and uh, I lived some very hard hard moments and then went jumped back into the saddle. The horse was my therapy. You know, I pulled myself back together on that second journey. And, and to meet this woman in, in a tiny village in southern Patagonia, where I never imagined I was even going to be um, feels like nothing less than, than destiny. You know, I, I truly feel like everything is written. And um, like I said, we're just going through the motions here. We all have our, our, our journeys to go on and, and this was mine.
1: Well, Matt, what do you think?
0: Uh, I'm thinking like, uh, how do you top something like that? I mean, what, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do next? <laughs> <laughs>
1: have the yeah, family? So,
0: well, yeah. yeah.
3: The harder journey, man. Now we got a hard long ride. It's called family. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sean knows. Sean's got three kids, so he's training you for that next step now.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sh- Sean, I, ju-
2: more I just
0: I just have one question for you, Sean. Um, you had you had to sift through 500 hours of video and. uh I mean, did you have a story in mind? I know you wanted to tell the story of, you know, why and how and stuff like that. But um, did you have like a path in mind when you started editing? Or did you, you know, did like during the watching of the videos, did you sort of develop that as you went along?
2: Um, that's a good question. Yeah. I I had that template, like I believe they wrote a a book that I just, I loved And I I knew there was the story there, but sometimes the footage didn't quite match or, uh, the, um, the, the book structure. Mm -hmm. So it was almost going through the footage and just being surprised where, wherever I felt like, um, I, I was surprised and, and, uh, showed interest in, in something that was happening on screen. I just wanted to kind of explore it more. Um, so there were, yeah, there were moments that, um, even that, that were in the book that I wanted to to know more about. Like there was this one moment in in Southern Colorado where, um, a gentleman invites Felipe into his home, um, and then gives uh, Felipe the ashes of his deceased sister. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was always a compelling part of uh, the book. That when I saw the footage uh, in the in the raw footage that Felipe shot, it was just a really special and, and touching moment. That uh, that uh, I was happy to kind of shine the light on.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, so I mean, I know you know I know you have you know you're doing the uh, the promotion for this this. Uh, project but what's next for you personally for for me sorry for yes Sean? for yeah Sean I'm sorry for you oh what?
2: yeah um, yeah so uh, we are still um, we're, we're going to tour the documentary around different festivals for the next few months and mm-hmm. at the same time we are now partnered with a production company in Brazil to to relaunch the narrative version called Long Ride Home. Um, and so we're doing some casting, uh,
1: some, you know,
2: scripting, we're looking at locations, and we're just getting all the kind of paperwork ready to uh, to launch into the, the film version of uh, Felipe's story.
0: Hmm. That's cool. Uh, Felipe, um, were there any, like, I mean, I'm sure you ran into a few negative experiences. Uh, do you want to share one of those?
3: Um, yeah, so I think the, the hardest part, the hardest experience I faced um, was in, in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras. I was uh, staying in, a, in these people's homes. It's a very uh, dangerous city, one of the most dangerous cities in the world due to the number of deaths per capita. It's completely controlled by the uh, drug traffic. The police are very corrupt, mm-hmm. so it's hard to know, you know who to even trust. And um, I was there and on a Sunday night, I was speaking to my family over Skype when all of a sudden I heard uh, three very loud gunshots and a woman uh, yelling desperately for her life. And I went to the window, I realized that the owner of the house was trying to kill his wife with um, you know, ultimately five gunshots at the end of it. And then everything just went to silence. I didn't know if it killed her. I was the only person that kind of saw and heard what was happening so I didn't know if he was gonna come uh, kill me next right so that was a, a very hard moment not only of the journey but of my life and that I still kind of carry with me and, and once in a while we'll wake up um, yelling at night and uh, yeah
2: it wasn't very pleasant to sit through
0: hmm all right Cat. one more question
1: uh, yeah, one thing that just come to my mind about um, the filming, Felipe, is, um, you know, did you film your um, wife-to-be at the time? Um, was that something that made the, the cut for, um, you know, importance of documenting in your mind at that time? Like when you, you know, first met her?
3: Yeah, it's funny because she didn't want to be filmed. Like, she was very... <laughs> she was like she was very you know um just not someone that liked to be public she didn't have social media didn't have instagram she lived in patagonia like literally in the middle of patagonia uh didn't have internet at her house so very alternative i would use the word and uh so at first i was like you you gotta let me you have to let me film you because you gotta you need to be a part of the story i knew that like I was going to marry this woman like I I knew there was no ifs ands or buts and I wanted to to document her because I knew ultimately at the end of the day this was going to be such a an integral and important part of of the story so there was some resistance at first but um, I managed to persuade her and, and I think we got some awesome shots that you're able to see in the documentary the story is there um and i think that uh, a lot of people see their own stories through this film and that that's what we try to do as storytellers ultimately you know we want you to watch this and although you're watching someone else's experiences and existence a good story will take you back to your own experiences and uh, i've heard that over and over um, from audiences after watching this film. People are crying because it reminded them of a horse they once had, or, or people telling me about how they thought about their loved ones when, when they saw my story with Clara. Um, so that's been a, a really cool part of it.
1: Wow. Well, I, I think it's all very fascinating, kind of a full circle story, because um, I imagine that you will be like your parents with allowing your future children to you know explore and um, have their own wings
3: for sure for sure you know I I I learned that from my parents and you know they just wanted to be wanted me to be happy no matter what and how selfless is that you know just to literally say okay kid if that's what's going to make you happy we'll ride a horse from Canada to Brazil you know How many people would have been like, no freaking way. You're getting a real job. You're paying your taxes. uh, And I literally went all in. Like That's that's the only way to explain it. It's like a poker game. I put all my chips in. It could have gone terribly wrong. uh, But I really believed in it. And and I think that uh, they saw the fire in my eyes. And and they supported me. And like I said, they didn't cut my wings. So I would like to hopefully do the same uh, with my kids one day.
1: Well, this will be interesting because we end our podcast um, with a question. Matt and I both have thought of a question that may or may not relate to anything in the interview. And generally, we only have one guest. So uh, they'll choose Matt's question or Kat's question. So this time we have two guests. or um, It'll be interesting to see. And also, we have uh, multiple questions. So... If you both were to choose the same person, you wouldn't get the same question. Um, so, Sean, would you like to answer Matt's question or Kat's question?
2: Ooh, um, I'll do Cat.
1: All right. Yay. Okay. So, um, if you could relive 60 seconds of your life every day for the rest of your life, what 60
2: seconds would you choose? Oh, wow. Um, I really That's a great question. Um, I would take uh, probably the first time I ever kind of projected a film at a theater for an audience. That's a really special moment in a filmmaker's life. And, um, you know, to see all your friends and family gather in one uh, theater and await something that you've worked for, you know, a year on um, for the first time is, is pretty exciting. And to, to experience, you know, clapping and adulation, even though it may be feigned by uh, your friends and family, it's still a, a rewarding experience in any filmmaker's life.
1: So like that ending um, after they viewed it um, and their expressions and reactions, that 60 seconds yeah that would be cool Uh, how motivating would that be if you could see that every day yeah I
2: would love that yeah I I carry around like a little sound effects machine of people clapping (laughs) where
1: Matt we need something like that yeah I guess we have to get people to clap first.
0: <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> I made it to work on time. Cue the applause.
2: <laughs> Yay!
1: <laughs> All right. Please. This will give you the same option. Math question or class question.
3: I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Let's see what you what got.
0: All right. So, um, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm making this question up as I'm talking. So, um, <clears throat> uh, So, if you had never heard of a horse or, you know, ridden a horse or any of that, um, what do you think your profession would be? What would you choose?
3: Um, Okay, I think that I would be a professional skydiver.
0: Okay. (laughs) Is that something that you want to do or have done or...
3: That's the biggest fear of my life, which I'm hoping to overcome this year. I'm like, I've said the bar. This year, I am jumping out of an airplane. Uh, But no, I I, I need adrenaline. That's basically what I'm getting at. I'd have to be doing something that, you know, would would give me a a heavy dosage of adrenaline on a daily
0: basis. Sure. So I I had one question going back to your story about when you met your uh, wife. Um, You said that it was love at first sight for you, but was it for her?
3: Oh no! Definitely not.
0: Oh, Okay. Not.
3: Um, <laughs> yeah. No. She was like, she was like, uh, no, I'm not having any. And it's funny because this like this lady had given me a little, a little bracelet, and she said, "You're gonna meet the love of your life. Give it to your soulmate." I'm like, "Lady, are you blind? <laughs> like, I'm traveling on a horse. Like, I'm I have a big beard. My clothes are ripped up. I smell bad. I don't shower often." I'm dusty. Like if I can't meet a woman in my hometown where I can shower twice a day and put on cologne, you think I'm gonna meet a woman here? And when I obviously saw Claire, I was like, "That woman's a witch." I'm like, "There she is." <laughs> so after you know the next night, I gave her the bracelet, and Claire gave it back to me because she thought I had like a little box of made in China nah. bracelets, yeah. hands girls all across the Americas. So <laughs> that was her thing. The whole time she was like, "This cowboy." is just, you know, trying to get girls to fall in love with him and and then riding off and finding a new girl in the next town. So that was the hardest thing was to persuade her that, like, I gave her my heart when I gave her that bracelet, and then she handed it back to me. Um, Mm. But I really, truly liked her, and although it wasn't the best scenario, I mean, yeah, I was traveling across confidence on horseback. I couldn't lie about my feelings, and eventually she kind of, saw that they were truthful and, and it all worked out but it wasn't easy man that's for sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's an awesome story all right cat
2: i word. hope
1: that makes a documentary i you know i'd love to i'd love to see that bracelet and i i, I mean that's that. that someone you know give that to you and told you you were going to meet the love of your life wow do you think she yeah. was a witch? I mean, what do you think <laughs> about it? Everyone,
3: everyone, everyone wants to go meet this lady now. All my single friends are like, where does she live exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, going to be this woman's agent. <laughs> <laughs> of whatever she,
1: no, no, I don't kidding. think that so. she was
3: a very very kind-hearted person. And at first, she gave me this bracelet. I'm like, why did you give me a woman's bracelet? Like, I was so astonished. And she's like, Yeah, she's like, take this. You're going to. You're going to meet your, they call it Flora del Pago in Argentina, which is kind of like the flower of the desert, and it translates to soulmate. And I'm like, this lady is crazy, but I'm glad I took it and uh, it all worked out. But again, it's just, you know, you you can't make this stuff up. You're like, this is just the universe proving that you're on the right path. And and it's all about, you know, when you follow your instincts, your heart, when you do what you're meant to do here, um, you know, I feel like you get these presents. And like I said,
2: everything's already written.
1: Wow. Good stuff there.
0: All right. And on that note, we will uh, we'll let you guys go. Uh, this ran a little bit longer than we originally envisioned, but, I mean, that's fine. Um, and we, you know, we really appreciate you telling your stories, and, uh, you know, thank you for your time. Yeah,
1: it's been awesome. Thank, thank you so much, you much for having me. So how can we see this, like... Um, how will, you know, our listeners, how is it going to be streaming sometime or?
3: I don't know, Sean, so I'll take this. So basically, uh, we sold it to, um, uh, super channel here in Canada and, uh, it's going to have its theatrical release in Canada in the summer. Uh, so July, June and July will open coast to coast in Canada and then we're hoping in the fall we're going to have a theatrical release in the U S so it'll come out and select theaters as well. Like we're doing in Canada. And then by the end of the year, it'll be in one of the streaming services uh, globally. Okay. So we'll make sure we let you know. And where are you guys based out of?
0: We're in Kentucky.
3: In Kentucky. Okay. And we'll also let you know if we end up getting into any festivals in that area, we're going to be in Wyoming. Um, we're also going to be Washington state, uh, LA, like we said, but if we, uh, if you have any festivals in, there, in that area, we'll reach out to you guys so you can come watch. But um, keep your eye out, hopefully, by the fall, you'll be in theaters. All
0: right.
1: Well, I mean, Kentucky is a Kentucky Derby. Oh. This is horse country. So, <laughs> horse country, you know, right? You need yeah. to cover it. <laughs> yeah. You oh, definitely sure. need to bring it Any theater it
3: needs to be in Kentucky, for sure. <laughs> Yes,
1: Louisville, at least,
3: or you know, <laughs> where the Derby is. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll keep in touch and let us know when it's out. We'll, uh, we'll share it on our social media and uh, make sure we get a lot of ears listening to the podcast.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great story, and I really appreciate getting to talk to both of you.
3: Uh, thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks for helping us share the story. Have a great day.
0: As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send those to cat at, at com. Or you can write to me at backstorysessions@gmail.com at gmail.com or matt at level11ventures.com. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.